We're going to go ahead and jump in here as we walk through. And let me, let me give you this proviso. I told you last week, we're going we're gonna to attempt in these last five weeks now, but six weeks, including last week, to, to walk through, do, do a survey over uh, the New Testament and, uh, and, and make it through, through the end by the end of the year. And, and tonight, last week, we kind of laid the groundwork, uh, looked at that we've got four, the New Testament begins with the four Gospels. And the four Gospels record the beginning parts. If you're going to talk about it from a chronological perspective, the beginning parts of the New Testament and the story that takes place and the history therein. Uh, we, we saw with each of those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, theologians would call those the synoptic Gospels because of their similarities. And, and they like to debate which one came first and was there another outside source. If you ever hear anybody talk about the Q document, that's the idea is, was there a common source of sayings of Jesus, of stories about Christ that was written down that they all pulled from? And some people will talk about it as if it's scientific fact, and it's, it's a theory. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. Uh, if you ever listen to the Greatest Adventures in Odyssey uh, trilogy, The Search for Wit, Part 1, 2, and 3, it's all about the Q document and whether they find it, this or that, the other. Um, but we got four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we've got John. All of them are written with different purposes, different structures. And we talked about that a gospel, uh, it, it's, I've heard many people say the gospels are like Jesus's biographies. And on one hand, when you're talking to someone who has absolutely no biblical literacy, who has no understanding, that's not necessarily a bad thing because you're trying, you're trying to help them identify what, what is this. The dangerous part of that is uh, for us, we talked about this last week, that when we think of a biography, we think of a, a, a modern day biography in which you're going to open up and you're going to get some background on that individual's family, most likely. And then you're going to start with that person's birth. And then you're going to walk through their childhood, their early childhood, their later childhood, their teenage years, their college years. Their, and you're going to on walk all the way through it until if, if there's someone who's already died to the end of their life, if there's someone still living, then you'll get some kind of, and thus they can, you know, however it's going to say uh, and end it. Uh, this is what a modern day biography is. That is not what a gospel is. A gospel is much closer if we're going to try to pin it on something. Truthfully, a gospel is unique. There's not any real ancient writing that really matches up to what the gospels are. They're unique. They're unique writings. But if, if we're going to go there, it's that if they're ancient biographies where, where the importance is less on the chronological, this happened first, then this happened, then this happened. And it's more about presenting a sound argument that is true. Everything in it is true, but presenting an argument. I just realized this is on mute. Sorry, everybody on Zoom. That'll probably help that. Um, it's presenting an argument about who this person is and what they said, and how what they did either backed up what they said or denied what they said. Uh, there was not a lot of attention giving to what was the individual thinking or feeling or, or what motivated. That was not what the, 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 uh, the ancients were concerned about. And that's not even what other cultures today are concerned about. It's very much how we as Americans tend to operate and think, well, what was that person thinking? What were they feeling? What were they? That's not what was there. Instead, you get four gospels, each written to a different audience, pulling from different sources. Matthew, the apostle, wrote Matthew's gospel, obviously pulling from his own firsthand experience. Uh, John Mark, uh, the follower, a disciple of, of Barnabas, a follower of Peter, took 
Peter's testimony and, and organize it into Mark's gospel. You've got Luke, the church historian, the, the, the physician who is, uh, wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. Of all the gospels, his is the most chronological because he lays it out at the beginning that he is attempting to lay out a, a uh, past to present uh, uh, um, of the life of Christ. And then you get John's gospel, which was written last of all, and is, is structured very theologically and is centered around the I am statements and, and the miracles and, and showing these ways specifically, he tells you his purpose is that you would believe in Christ. And so when you read the gospels, understanding their purpose, who they're written to, their unique things, all of that will help open up understanding of, of the gospel. But most of us tend to be chronological people. And so I, I just think it'd be interesting to walk through with all of us starting with the beginning of Christ's life to the end, a chronological walk through the life of Christ. By the way, there are books done like this. I was actually looking for a different one that I had, and I discovered that in some new books I've gotten from my granddad that I had this one. This is called, a, this is called Harmony of the Gospels. And the first part of it gives you kind of some background on the Gospels, an index, scripture references, how to use this. But then what this has done is it has taken every verse from all four Gospels and put them in at least what best they can tell is chronological order. And so if you read through this book, it's going to be all the Gospels, but it's going to be those passages patchworked into, and it's called uh, Harmony of the Gospels. So feel free if you want to come look at it afterwards, you can, but those can be helpful things if you ever want to try to read through the, the cheat sheet for tonight. It's not really a cheat sheet. It's actually just that is a, a, uh, a harmony and an attempt to try to put all the different passages of the Gospels into some kind of chronological order. That's what that is. It's just a resource for you to use. Again, all of anytime we say, hey, this is the, we don't know exactly the chronological order on everything because we weren't totally there. There's some things that are very obvious. There's a lot of context clues that can help us piece. But if on that sheet, it said that Jesus fed the 5,000 after he did this, but before he did this, and one day he tells you, actually, I reversed that. And that's, well, again, we're doing the best we can with what we've got uh, and, and can be there. Now, when we come to Jesus, before we completely dive in, remember that Christ, uh, during Jesus' day, the Roman Empire is ruling the known world. Uh, there is the Pax Romana. They are, they are in charge of everything. And we come to the life of Christ. Here is how the uh, Holy Land was divided up in Jesus's day. You've got the region of Judea uh, over here. This is obviously Jerusalem, Bethlehem, uh, Jericho. You've got Perea on the other side. You've got Galilee uh, up here with Nazareth and uh, Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee right there. The Jordan River goes down, 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 down and drops into the Dead Sea, which is quite dead. If you've ever been there, looks real pretty, but I'd recommend you don't drink it. So as we come to the life of Christ, let me just give you a little background as we walk in. Uh, when you look at the life of Christ, there's going to be two major things we notice in the Gospels. It's going to be the things he does and the things he teaches. And the method behind how Jesus taught, understand that as, as Jesus spoke, as he taught the people, whether you liked him or whether you disliked him, there was something gripping about how he taught and how he spoke. We see this right off the bat in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter one, verse 22 says this, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. 
We see this pattern play out in the gospel of Matthew. You can look at the Sermon on the Mount and, and Jesus will say something like this. You've heard it told you. You have heard the scriptures say you shall not murder, but I tell you. He speaks not as one who is saying, hey, in all my study, let me tell you what this might mean. He speaks as one who says, hey, Scripture says this. This is what you've heard Scripture say. Now, let me tell you what it actually means. Why? Because it's my word. I wrote it. I said it. That's what that translates into. He spoke as one who had authority. He didn't depend on references or, or his predecessors or previous teachers uh, shared and, and told, which is, which is completely Completely different. So unlike other rabbis, there were many other teachers, many other religious teachers, many other rabbis that people tethered themselves to as followers, as disciples. This was common in the Holy Land, but they would have all taught you uh, their, their understanding, their interpretation based on this person, this person. Jesus doesn't do any of that. And he has an insight and an understanding of the scriptures that no one else has. When he's teaching, he most often would use parables. Now understand, parable is simply a short story or a pithy statement which conveys a spiritual truth by comparing it to other facts from everyday life that are familiar to the listener. And this is the key with the parable. Not every detail in the parable is important. Not every detail in the parable is a metaphor for something else. Because okay, you know how sometimes we can be. We're like, oh, well, what does this stand for? What does this stand for? And all of a sudden you get these hyper crazy out there. And we do this totally in the Christian community. I'm not just making this up. And this thing, this thing, and the fact that Jesus uses, no, listen, every parable, not every detail is important. And every parable only has a singular point. It's a simple thing to try to illustrate a singular point. The other interesting things about parables, and this is part of the debate over the passage about Lazarus and hell, is parables don't name anybody in the parable. But in that, is it a parable? Well, it'd be the only parable where Jesus names people. So it leads you to believe it's probably not. He used figures of speech. If you're ever in the Holy Land, Jesus was incredibly visual in, in his use of illustration. He spoke in common terms, in common things. He used questions and answers. He, he gave object lessons like washing the disciples' feet, frequent repetition. And in all of it, he lived out what he taught. Now, what was the content? If this is how he taught, what was the core of what Jesus was teaching? Well, the simple way you can understand it, think about the Gospel of John. What is, what is, what is John centered around? The seven I am statements. The core of Jesus' teaching centered on himself. He's the content of his teaching. Uh, he's, he's from an early point, Luke chapter 2, verse 49, when, when everyone caravans back up to Galilee and he stays behind as a 12-year-old boy and is in his blowing the scholars at the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees away and, and what he's teaching. And he, when his parents show up, he's like, what are you doing, boy? And he said, don't you understand? I, I understand what my mission is. I understand who my heavenly father is. What are you going to do to hold me up? When he, when he spoke to his enemies, he used language which clearly demonstrated he knew he is the Christ. Some would say, well, Jesus didn't know he was. Well, yeah, he knew he was the Christ. He knew exactly what he was saying when he said, before Abraham was, I tell you, I am. He claimed his own deity. He accepted worship that was offered to him. You see that in John chapter 20. The real emphasis, if you want to summarize Jesus' teaching, if it's centered around himself, the teaching was the kingdom of God. In fact, the core of Jesus' message is what? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
The kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is a term that refers to God's rule over the hearts of man. It culminates in in an establishment of of some kind where that, that necessitates Jesus' death, resurrection. We speak of the kingdom now of something that has come in part and is something that is not yet. It is already, but not yet. That would be the term that we would use. Jesus' kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. Men and women can be reconciled to God, filled by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, communities of heaven, the local church, the body of Christ exists. The kingdom is now, but the kingdom is not yet in full because we still live in a broken world to which we are ambassadors and citizens of the kingdom that is coming, citizens of heaven, which will fully obviously inaugurate at the second coming of Christ. Uh, Jesus did not hesitate to proclaim the importance of his mission. Luke chapter four, verse uh, 43, he makes the statement, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of heaven to other cities for I was sent for this purpose. He called sinners to repentance. Matthew chapter nine, verse says this, uh, they're reclining at the table. Jesus was reclined. Behold, many tax collectors, sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Again, radical behavior, truly for a rabbi of that day. Tax collectors are the, the, the scummiest of the scum of Jewish society because they're ripping off their own people to, to, to make a profit for themselves and have favor with the Romans. You see other sinners that the Pharisees said, no, no way, don't, don't be with them, don't be near them. When the Pharisees, they saw, they said, why is your teacher, uh, talking to the disciples, eating with tax collectors? When Jesus heard this, he said, is it, not those, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I go and, but go and learn what this means. And quoting the Old Testament, I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call righteous, but sinners. Jesus was, was very focused on what his mission was. He proclaimed a gospel that called sinners to repentance. He understood that he was here to give his life as a ransom for many. Not only this, and not only did he proclaim the kingdom, but he was very clear about how one can be a part and enter into the kingdom. Uh, he's clear all throughout the Gospels, but, but probably the most thorough and specific example off, uh, off the top that most will know is John chapter 3 and his conversation with Nicodemus. So here's a man who's a Pharisee, a, a Pharisee of the Jews. He's well taught in the Scriptures. He comes to Jesus. He says, we understand. He goes, look, I see you teach, you do signs that no one can do unless God is with them. And, and Jesus just cuts to the heart of the matter. And he says, unless one is born again, yeah, they can't see the kingdom of God. Well, that's a radical concept. That doesn't sound so radical when we read it. If you've grown up in the church and you're familiar, you know, oh, I'm born again, born again Christian. When did you get born again? When did you get saved? Those, those, those things are so common. But understand, imagine never having heard that. Never having heard that there needs to be a complete transformation of my being and someone looking at you and going, hey, if you want to know my kingdom, you got to be born again. And you get then Nicodemus's question, well, how on earth can that happen? Is, is a grown man supposed to crawl back in his mother's womb and get born a second time? Like, he's not just trying to be funny and sarcastic. Like, there's a little bit of, well, Jesus, that's kind of, that's kind of impossible. And that's the point. It is impossible. No man, no person can 
be born again in and of their own places. Yet Jesus says you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Born of flesh and flesh is flesh. Born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. And of course, then you get, uh, then you get the statement, how's a person born again? For God so loved the world. He gave his, now your Bibles will say like mine, one and only or only begotten. That's honestly a horrible English translation. So I'd, very rarely will I ever tell you to mark something out in your Bible, but you should mark it out and replace it with one and only unique the term there, and the reason I say that is because that's something people use it. Well, it says begotten, so Jesus must have been born. No. It's not the word for someone being birthed. It's a Greek word, monogenes, which has nothing to do with one's birth. It has to do with the fact that it is one and only, unique, one of a kind, no other like it ever. So when it says that Jesus is God's one and only son, it's because there is none other like him. He is the only one who is fully God and fully man. God so loved the world, he gave Jesus, the one and only, so that anyone who believes, who faiths in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is clear, repentance, I like the way one phrase it, repentance involves both moral and theological change. Morally, it transforms a person to obey Christ. Theologically, it demands a correct belief in who Christ is. When the the Jews, after the feeding of the 5,000, come and say, Jesus... What work, what work must we do to be saved? And of course, Jesus will play the irony. He's going to tell them, well, let me tell you what work God would require of you to be saved. The work is this, that you faith in the one in whom he sent. Not the one in whom you think he sent, not who you want the one he sent to be, the one in whom he sent. There has got to be a correct belief about who Jesus is and a complete trust and dependence for him. So understanding these backgrounds, primarily we see Jesus teaching. The, the, the method of his teaching he used a variety of methods, but he spoke in a way that is common and able to be understood. And don't miss that. God wants people to know him. God wants us to know him. Jesus obviously had such a demeanor about his teaching and presence and such a a way with words that was common that children were obviously attracted to him in droves. Otherwise, you wouldn't have him having to rebuke the disciples to keep all the kids away because they were keeping him from ministering to the adults. And we all know this about kids. Kids don't enjoy someone who they can't understand and they don't like to hang around someone who's a jerk. It's just truth. Kids don't, kids, kids don't gravitate like the way you see them gravitate to Scripture. What is the content of Jesus' teaching? It's the kingdom. It's, it's what God has sent him to do. So I'll say, this is a little background, walking chronologically. Let me give you three, uh, three or really there's going to be two key dates here, but there's three key specific things that, that as far as dating. One, when was Jesus born? Well, he's born most likely, we don't know precisely, but he's born most likely somewhere in the year of five or six BC, or I should reverse that, six or five BC. Why six or five BC? We know that he's got to be born before the death of Herod the Great, because Herod the Great's the one who seeks to slaughter all the kids aged two and younger to try to take out this king of the Jews. Well, Herod the Great died either in, uh, in four BC or one BC. And you say, well, why the discrepancies? Well, it all just... Is, 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 is tied to old recording methods. 
So here's the point. Simple point is this. Jesus wasn't born in zero. The guy who went back and did that back in the Middle Ages, he got it wrong. He didn't have access to as much information as we have today. Uh, he has to be born before Herod the Great is dead. Most, most are pretty positive Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Therefore, Jesus has to be born in 5 or 6 BC if he's going to live, if he's going to be able to be two years old when Herod sends the soldiers to kill all the two years old and younger. Uh, this has to also correspond with, according to the Gospel of Luke, the census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus. It's got to be during the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and as well as a major astronomical event. Now, there's, there's great, if you've ever heard of the documentary, Star of Bethlehem, it's a fascinating documentary with a guy who went back, studied all the astronomy. And the great thing about astronomy is you can kind of rewind the skies and see what's going on. And, and he gives this whole pretty, pretty solid case of the Star of Bethlehem being this major astro uh, astronomical event with Jupiter and Saturn. And, and there was a repeating of part of it a couple, uh, a, two years ago. That's very possible. It's also, if you really look at the language in the text, the language in the text seemed to describe some things that would just describe really a supernatural light in the heavens. So could it have been something natural? Could it have been supernatural? Could be. Uh, there's, there's, you can make a good case for both. But we know there was this major astronomical event. So that centers around the birth. We know the length of Jesus's public ministry was somewhere, give or take a few months, around three years Jesus had a public ministry of around three years. We know this because we, we know for sure that at least three Passovers occurred in Jesus's ministry. John's gospel seems to hint that there was a fourth. So depending on if you take that to just be information from one of the three or a fourth, there's either three or four Passovers that Jesus's ministry goes over. So we're talking about a three-year public ministry, which by the way, is that not fascinating that the Messiah spent near 30 years in absolute obscurity by the plan and design and will of God for three years of public, noticeable, fruitful ministry. There's a lot you can do when you really start to unpack that and apply it to our lives. That was one of, um, there's been several great uh, 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 men of God over the years who, have, who God has used to do things that we celebrate and go, wow, and and that's all stood out to them as, you know, what, wow, look, God, God may hide me in obscurity, but it doesn't mean he's not working. It doesn't mean, and it also doesn't, I mean, look at that. Jesus spent, how many years was Jesus just getting up on time, going to the carpenter shop, doing the job, providing for his family? And it's this tension a lot of times with, with younger folk of, man, you do something great for God and you got to, and we do all of this. And all of a sudden when like, most people do, and they're out of that college stage, they get married, and you quickly realize, okay, like, all these dreams in my mind of being this world changer, it didn't, that's not really what the real world's like, and they get real discouraged spiritually. Well, sometimes it's because, in rightfully calling us out of our everyday stupor, to remember that it's not about making a paycheck and working a nine-to-five, and being successful in the world's eyes. We are to live our lives for eternity, we can also go too far that direction and forget that we are to live our lives for eternity as ambassadors of Christ in a very real, everyday, mundane world. And there's, there's a reality there that obviously in Jesus's life is true. Now, when did Jesus die? Well, what we know from John's gospel is that Jesus began his ministry around the age of 30. Doesn't say exactly the age of 30, just around the age of 30. Could have been 30, could have been 31, could have been 32. 
Uh, there's kind of two, depending on when you date his birth. Uh, some, would, some would argue that Jesus died either in uh, AD uh, 29 or 30. The star of Bethlehem guy, because of when he goes back and rewinds all the stars and does all that, if you listen to his documentary, he actually comes down not just on AD 33, but he specifically tell you it'll ha- it happened on Friday, uh, I believe April the 5th, 33 AD, based on, again, if you've never seen that documentary, it's easy to get a hold of. It's, it's fascinating and, and, and does a great job. So these are key dates, born around five or six, depending on how you want to date it, either died around uh, AD 30 or AD 33 after a public ministry of three years. So here's how we break up the chunks here. Birth and early years. What, is, what do the Gospels tell us? Well, hope you got your Bibles. Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospels that really give us any picture at, at what happens in Jesus' birth and childhood. All of that's contained in, in Matthew and, and Luke. Mark hints at it a little bit, but Mark's the gospel of action immediately, immediately. So Mark, boom, starts off uh, right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, you remember this? Matthew's gospel starts off with a genealogy, uh, a, 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 a structured genealogy. It's not every person in the genealogy, but it's three sets of 14. And he's gonna trace the genealogy starting with Abraham through Joseph's lineage. Why? Because he's writing to Jews who want to know the connection back to Abraham, the father of the Jews, who would have traced and been about what's the lineage through the father, because that's what mattered in Jewish society. So this is how Matthew structures his Uh, His genealogy goes into then in chapter 1, verse 18, the birth of Christ is as follows. Mother Mary betrothed to Joseph. You'll remember we talked about that betrothing, uh, the process of marriage in Jewish first century was a little different than today. The idea of dating around till you found your soulmate and one you love, that 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 just makes you feel all uh, sugar drops and gumdrops, and that was not at all what anybody thought of back then. Marriage was entered into, the dads would get together, they'd arrange the marriage. The richer the dad, uh, the richer the dad of the bride, the more money had to be paid for the bride because the bride, uh, when that bride left his home, he lost a worker. And so you needed to recompensate him. Uh, Once that agreement was entered into, you entered into what uh, the betrothed period, which is, is someone say, well, it's like engagement. It's not totally like, it's like engagement in the sense of you're not fully married, living under the same roof, able to enjoy all of the aspects of intimacy of marriage. In that sense, it's like engagement. It's not like engagement in the sense of legally you're married, but you're in this in-between time where the, where the, 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 the husband is, uh, is preparing, preparing the house, preparing to, to go through that uh, because you're betrothed. Certainly in Jewish culture, based on the Old Testament, any sexual immorality would be frowned upon. But sexual morality inside of that would add to not just sexual morality, but the idea of adultery because you are betrothed. And it's in that period that Mary, it says in Matthew's gospel, was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Matthew is going to hone in on, it's really Matthew's gospel as far as looking at uh, Jesus's family. Luke's gospel shows you a lot more with Mary. Matthew's gospel is what gives us what we know about Joseph. More than any of the other gospels, as in the earthly father of Jesus. Uh, Joseph, righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, was going to put her away secretly. Angel appears to Joseph. Don't be afraid. Instead, understand this is the Messiah. Name him Jesus. And Joseph awakes. 
and does exactly what the Lord commands him. And you'll notice that pattern again. Now, that's where Matthew's gospel goes. Matthew's gospel jumps when you get to chapter two to the visit of the Magi. And so whenever you're getting ready here in a couple weeks, or maybe some of you've already done it, you got your Christmas decorations out and you got your manger scene and it looks all nice and you got your baby Jesus and your Mary and Joseph and your shepherds and your, your dill and it looks real good to put those kings. Why are there three? Don't know why they're three. It's because there's three gifts. Who knows how many there were? But you put, your, you put your magi there, except that those magi weren't there when Jesus was born. Uh, go put them on the other side of the house to represent the fact that they were two years away from getting there. So that's when you jump over, if we're walking chronologically, that's when you keep your finger in Matthew, but you jump over to Luke, to Luke's gospel. And Luke actually starts his gospel, not with the birth of Christ, but with the birth of John the Baptist, who, who early, both early in the life of Christ in terms of the birth of Christ, but early in setting up the ministry of Christ is a key figure in the life of Christ. It's John the Baptist who's conceived first. Of course, the story goes there in, in Luke's gospel. His father goes in. God hadn't spoken uh, in divine revelation in 400 years. And all of a sudden he goes in, angel shows up, says, hey, I know you're old, know your wife's old, but you're gonna be pregnant with, with the Elijah who is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he's like, no way. And then he said, well, just so I'll prove you, you're not gonna talk again till he's born. And he comes out. And of course, obviously, John the Baptist is, is born during the time that Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. It's when you're going to have uh, Gabriel appear to Mary. Again, I just always think, oh my goodness, can you imagine that encounter? Uh, Mary's probably 13, 14 years old. Here's this angel. We've already talked about angels, that when angels show up, it's not like, oh, an angel. You look like a precious moment's. It's like, oh, an angel, I want to, I'm terrified. Uh, he says, do not fear. He tells Mary, can you, I mean, just even imagine that. Hey, and Mary, by the way, out of every human being that's ever lived, God's chosen you to be the one to carry, carry his Messiah. And, and you're going to have to go through the scorn of people knowing you're pregnant and you're not fully married to Joseph. And you're going to have to, what's Joseph going to think knowing you could be stoned to death? I mean, like there's a lot of stuff that wraps up that for the sake of an overview tonight, we, we're not going to get into. There's a lot that's there. Mary, of course, goes after this and visits Elizabeth. And in a powerful statement, uh, Matthew or Luke 1:41, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby that John the Baptist leaped in her womb. If an unborn baby can recognize Jesus the Messiah, then an unborn baby is a person. And any statement to the contrary is a violation of God's word and his image. So uh, it's a powerful testimony, even in that little, that little deal. If an unborn baby can respond to God, it's just one more, one more, uh, it's one of the many ways scripture is clear on the sanctity of life for the unborn. Um, John's born in the rest of chapter one and Zechariah prophesies. Then, then Luke chapter two goes into Jesus's birth uh, where you've got Mary and Joseph going down to Nazareth to, for the census and there's you know, no room in the inn and they, they're in the manger. And the reality is, by the way, remember they're up here in Nazareth. This is Nazareth, but they've got to go down and register down here in Bethlehem. It's a good long journey it is a lot of up and down mountainous hills. And at nine months pregnant, she's riding on a donkey. And every lady who's given birth in here has a whole lot more sympathy for her and what's gone on there. 
Oh, that's not exactly. Where am I going here? Oh, I must have deleted that picture out. Okay. So in the picture of the house I showed you last week, one of the things about the mangers, you know, we've got all these cute, in our manger scene, stables that look kind of like little barns. That is not at all what the stable looked like in the first century. Uh, it would have been a house, and those houses would have had many times either dug, dug out underneath or really dug out in rock. That was the stable. So really put more of the image in your mind of a cave. That's more attuned to what they were in uh, as far as where Jesus is born. Uh, by the way, just so you know, if you ever go to the Holy Land today, they'll take you in this church, uh, the Church of the Nativity, and they'll take you down to this real nasty, awful place that I hate that they say Jesus was birthed. No one has a clue where in Bethlehem Jesus was born. The reality is that house was destroyed long ago, and there was a good several hundred year period where there were no believers living in the Holy Land. The site of where Jesus was born, only God knows that. And I guess Mary and Joseph and the shepherds who showed up. But if they believed in Jesus, they're in heaven, and so it, they're, they're, we, don't, we don't know what they would say. Um, and the reason I say it's gross is because when you go there, there are people in there worshiping the ground. And it's, it's, just, it's just very sad and, and gross that, that, that the birth of our Lord has been twisted into an act of idolatry. So if you're like, I can't believe pastor said, it's not because I'm anti the nativity. It just, if you ever do go there, take your time to walk around that actual church. That's far more fascinating because it's three different churches over a variety of, of centuries that have been built on top of each other. It's just a cool historical thing. So do that instead. But you see that there in, chat, in, in the gospel of Luke. Of course, Luke is also going to record the angels appearing to the, the shepherds the, in the shepherds' fields, uh, which are there outside, outside of Bethlehem. And um, of course, the angels show up there and scare the mess out of all the shepherds. But they go, the shepherds, these lowly shepherds were the lowly of the lowly viewed with disdain for their, um, if tax collectors were viewed with disdain for their uh, pettiness, greed, throwing their own people under the bus, shepherds were viewed with disdain just because they were lowly, dumb, low lives. So the fact that the first people God announces the birth of his Messiah to are to the shepherds tells you something about the Lord doesn't overlook anybody. No matter what society's views of that person are. So of course they show up. Um, and again, this is to me remarkable about the birth of Jesus is if you, if you read in Matthew and you read in Luke, um, or it's, it's, it's coming up here actually, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So back in Luke, uh, Luke 2.21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days for the purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him up to Jerusalem. So here you go. Uh, you're, you, you've traveled all this way, nine months pregnant. You're down here in Bethlehem. And then after you give birth, about a week after you get birth, you're going to make the two-mile journey over here to Jerusalem to the temple to present him to the Lord. Uh, and it says in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came uh, in the Spirit to the temple. And when the, Spirit, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him in the custom of the law, 
Then he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all people. And notice how in tune with the Lord's plan Simeon is. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So here's a man lacking so much of what we had access to today who is in tune with the Spirit, who the Spirit promises you're not gonna die until you see. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that moment when here, here in the temple, Simeon's hanging out and all of a sudden through, through these steps, he sees this couple with this little baby and he realizes that this baby is gonna be the one who saves me. He holds that baby in his arms and he cries out that cry of praise. And he understands that that baby's not there to save Israel from the, from the wicked might of the Romans, but that baby's there to save both Israel and any, any person in this world from the even far more wicked might of sin and death. Man, what, what an incredible moment. And his father and mother were amazed Simeon blessed this child. He said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to the opposed, and the sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that uh, thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And in addition, there was Anna the prophetess who was there. She was advanced in years. She was a widow at the age of 84. She never left the temple. She served day and night, fasting and praying. At that moment, she came up and gave thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for redemption of Jerusalem. And after this happens, after this happens, they will go, they will leave, they will leave Jerusalem. I say that. If you run, if you run back to, so, Luke's gospel is going to say when they performed everything in the law, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Well, Luke's going to say that having jumped over, which you go back to Matthew and find. So you jump back at that point, verse 38 in Luke, you jump back to Matthew. And that's when, after these days, chapter 2 of Matthew was born in Bethlehem, Jesus. Uh, Magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem. They went to Herod the king first. Where has he been born? The king of the Jews. So again, don't you remember this? Anna... Gospel of Luke tells us Anna, day and night in the temple, she's a prophetess. Simeon's cried out about this child. She's telling people day and night about this child. She's speaking of him to everyone looking for redemption. You've got to come back to Matthew. The Magi show up. They go to King Herod. They say, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Herod's like, hey, hey, scribes, people who study the Old Testament, because remember, Herod's not a Jew, Hey, scribes, where's the, where's the Messiah to be born? Oh, king, he's to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures say. And they quote the scriptures. So then Herod goes, oh, okay, hey, Magi, when did you see this star? Oh, about two years ago. Okay, well, let me know what you find. So the Magi go on. They, they, they roll through town. They're in, uh, they're in Jerusalem. And where, is it? where does it make this statement? Let me find it. I know it's right here. They come and ask, verse, chapter two, verse three of Matthew, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Not just Herod. This is the talk of the town. 
Hey, did you hear? Did you see, did you see those people from the east? They said the king of the Jews has been born. They said the Messiah has been born. They said the Messiah has been born. And we know that the scribe, that's what's over in Bethlehem. Could you hear this? This is the talk of the town. Of course, the Magi will go. They will worship at the feet of, at the feet of Jesus. They'll bring a gifts to Jesus. Then they will recognize by way of dream from the Lord that Herod is seeking to do something wicked and they leave without going back to Herod. And then, of course, this is, and then in, in Matthew chapter two is the flight to Egypt that when they had gone, an angel appeared. Here's where we see Joseph again. An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, take the child, go down to Egypt. Herod's gonna destroy. So he get up, that gets up right then and there, leaves their livelihood, leaves their place of residence. While it was still night, got him up in the middle of the night, didn't waste any time and ventured down, left for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill prophecy spoken by the Lord out of Egypt, I will call my son. So, so here they are brought to the temple. And then they're going to come down, come down here somewhere into Egypt. They're going to stay there for several years. And remember, Egypt had a population of Jews. A lot of Jews living in the diaspora, not in the Holy Land. They're going to live there as foreigners in exile until they hear that Herod the Great has died. Uh, and then they will make their journey back up to Nazareth where they are from. Now, I point out some of those other things. One, I point out the stuff with Joseph. You really only see two instances of Joseph in Scripture, both in Matthew. In both situations, Joseph is faced with a, a, a situation that is extremely difficult, where God asks him to trust him in something that is absolutely crazy. And in both instances, the statement about Joseph is, he believed and he did it. He believed and he did it. He trusted the word of the Lord, he did it. It's a powerful example for us. Are we willing to trust what the Lord says and do it? There's Joseph. I also point out the other stuff to you because starting with the birth of Christ and of the prophetess, telling anybody looking for redemption, the Christ, he's been born. He's in Bethlehem, seen him. You get the Magi showing up two years later. The whole talk of the town is Jesus has been born. The Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. The scribes know Yet only foreigners dare go see him. All of Jerusalem is up in arms that the Messiah has been born a two-mile walk away. And nobody does a thing. Sometimes when we read the story of the life of Christ, especially around Christmas time, we get into this moment where we're like, man, the Jews, they were just so focused on the wrong thing. They just completely missed. No, do you understand what this says? One, yeah, they were focused on the wrong thing. But it says it was the talk of the town in Jerusalem, the center of the Jews. It was the talk of the town that the Messiah had been born and they had people who knew the Old Testament well enough to know where he was born. And nobody did a thing. And the danger for all of us, we can know a whole lot of truth. And whether literally or metaphorically, sit on our rear ends and do nothing about it. We can know a lot of truth about how to draw near. We'll look at that Sunday, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We can have all the truth in front of us about drawing near to God, yet we can, far, far easier and closer than two mile walk. 
Yet so many were just content to sit back and not know ourselves, not know personally, not know what that looks like. People missed Jesus because they wanted to miss Jesus, not because he just slipped their focus. Now, I'm not saying they knew everything we know today. They didn't know everything we know today, but Scripture's pretty clear. They knew enough that somebody could have ventured over there. Now, understand, even in the lost world today, lost people choose not to follow Christ because they choose not to know Christ. Now, it may be a conscious rejection of Christ, or it just may be an, an unwillingness to compromise their affirmation of going after whatever lie of sin and death they're going after. But we got one more thing to look at before we break. That way we can stop with the early life of Christ. And that takes us back over. Herod slaughters the babies there in Matthew. And then that ends. Matthew ends with Herod dying and them going back up to Nazareth. Luke, when you run back over to Luke, remember Luke says what he says about Anna the prophetess. And Luke says, when they performed these things, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then it describes in the rest of chapter two that about 12 years old, they went down like they're supposed to for the feast of the Passover. And it went when he became 12, according to custom. And after the, after the Passover feast, they returned. They spent the full number of days, but Jesus slipped, slipped out of their sight and stayed there in Jerusalem. They couldn't, they began a day's journey. How crazy is that? Now, you go, how did they lose somebody for a day's journey? Well, you're talking about a mass caravan. You're not talking about, hey, we got in the car and we, we, we kept road tripping for a day to the Rockies and we, we forgot Jesse at the gas station. <laughs> well, then you, we need to talk adoption and take you out and analyze your brain. You're talking a mass you're traveling as a village, people you know, your closest friends, your neighbors, family members, you've got multiple brothers. and so You're talking about a mass caravan where you, you wouldn't be consciously aware all the time probably of where your 12-year-old son is. If they get a day's journey and they realize, we, we don't know where on earth, Jesus, Jesus didn't come and stay in the tent tonight and, we, and he's not staying with any of his buddies. We don't, we don't know where he's at. And so they go back to Jerusalem, they break off. And then after three days, so it's been four days since Mary and Joseph have seen their son. They find Jesus in the temple asking questions uh, find in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. It says, all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, son, why, why, why have you treated us this way? Or, you know, modern day, what on earth are you thinking? You scared my heart. We've been looking everywhere for you. And he said, why is it that you were looking for me? Do you not understand that I have to be in my father's house? And look what it says, but they did not understand the statement which he made to them. So even though in Luke, we see Mary constantly treasuring these things in her heart, even though in Matthew's gospel, we see an unbelievable response to the Lord by Joseph to obey what God tells him to do in, in those instances, still both of them don't really fully understand the calling and the nature of the Messiah, the child that God has entrusted to them. They didn't understand, so he went down with them to Nazareth. He continued in subjection to them. He continued to honor them. His mother treasured these things in her heart, and it says this, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And that's the last statement you get from the time he's 12 until we're going to pick up around the age of 30 next week. And this is, and so Jesus will grow up. 
Jesus will grow up up here in Nazareth, uh, which is, a, 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 there's, there's a town there now, there's a city there now, but it would have been a village at the time. Uh, it's it's uh, next to Mount, uh, sits under the watch of what's called Mount Precipice, which when you go up to the top of Mount Precipice, it overlooks the Valley of Megiddo, which is the Valley of Armageddon, where the final battle will take place. If we're not riding into battle with the Lord, I've already got a spot I claimed on the trip over there to watch it all happen from Mount Precipice. Uh, <laughs> it's a really cool mountain with a really beautiful, it's truly one of the most breathtaking views I've seen. Um, it's It's beautiful. And uh, you can climb a pretty good ways out very safely on that. It's very rocky, like it's just layers and layers of rock. So you can, you look like from the back, you're about to fall off and die, but really there's tons of rock in front of you. You're not in any way close. So I kept getting hollered at by, by uh, the people on the trip. Don't go, Pastor, don't go. And I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. There's, if I were to fall right now, I'd bust my head on rock, not fall off the mountain. You just can't see it. But it's very beautiful. And that's where Jesus grew up. As a normal, everyday boy, in terms of what people saw, in subjection, honoring his father and mother. At some point in there, between now and next week, Joseph will die. We don't know how, we don't know what, we don't know when, but we feel fairly confident because this is the last time you see Joseph. He never appears again. The only other times you see Jesus' biological family, it's only his mother and his brothers and sisters, which would have meant that for a period of time, Jesus is the oldest son, would have been the breadwinner for the home. He would have likely, according to tradition, he would have grown up um, in his father's trade, carpentry, working with wood, working with trees. Of course, what a foreshadowing. Since it's on a tree, he's going to pour his blood out. And he grew up normal. And it says, according to Scripture, if you go back over what we looked at in the last year in Philippians, that when Jesus took on flesh, he didn't cease being God. He didn't somehow take his divinity and rip it from himself and set it aside. No, he's still fully God, fully divine, but as only one who is fully God can do, he chose to not use his divinity as a power to coerce us, to lord over us. He also chose to, 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 in humility, not use any of his divinity for his life as a human, which means very practically this. When Jesus is young and he's learning how to swing that hammer and drive that nail in and he pops his thumb and he cuts, he cuts himself, he didn't kind of look around and no one see and then kind of, you know, say the, say the words and heal his wound. He went and stitched it up. And, um, and of course, this is just the marvelous reality, the unbelievable reality of the incarnation. Because I think about all the stuff. Now, I think, I think my daughter is the cutest thing in all the universe. And I should. Um, she's turning two, by the way, tomorrow. Oof, it's rough on our hearts. But, um, but I also... Right? None of us remember what it's like to be a baby or a little kid, which is probably good because it's kind of hard in a lot of ways. On one, it's easy. You eat, sleep, poop, and be cute, right? Like, and everybody wants to pick you up and coddle you and hold you and this and that. But on the other hand, you've got all the times we are constantly, she's constantly falling and hitting her head. She, she doesn't understand certain things, this or that. Who wants to be potty trained? Fair point? Our Lord chose to take on every last aspect of that so that as a man, he could live the life in the flesh we have all failed to live. And as a one who is fully man could step in the role of high priest between us and God, and as one who is fully God and fully man could become our sin on the cross. And so we have all these years in between 
where the Lord is shaping, where the Lord is, where the Lord is, where the Father is shaping, molding, preparing him for what he's called, what he's purposed to do. And in the midst of all those years, which to us seem mundane and nothing, not a moment of that time was wasted in God's purpose and plan. Which means when we're in those years, those seasons, not a moment of those seasons is wasted in God's timing and plan. I mean, there's so much we could apply and walk through. I'll give you this last note, and we, and we will conclude, which is this. There are old documents that other denominations will pop out to claim, oh, you know, well, and I can't name off which New Testament apocryphal works they are off the top of my head. I'd have to have my list in front of me. But they'll claim things like, oh, here's the miracles Jesus did as a kid, and here's when these birds died at 13, and he raised the birds from the dead, and, and all these fantastical tales about Jesus. You should never take those with any more than a grain of salt because they're not God's word. And by the way, the New Testament church never took any of them even with a grain of salt, which is why they're not in the canon. And we looked at some of that last spring in the Bibleology series. If you want more on that, you can go back online, hit the, hit the one about canonization. We, I share a lot more about that. But just know that, be aware. Now, for some of you who are older, you may go, ah, I'm not going to hear that. But I see a lot of that kind of stuff getting mentioned on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. So you may have kids or grandkids who find some of that and say, hey, mom, hey, hey grandma, do you, know that, do you know that Jesus at 15 uh, split the sea in two? Yeah, no. And so part of what I'm sharing this with you is to help give you some, some tools to be able to talk to, to those situations. Uh, so just know if it's not in Scripture, all Scripture gives us is right before the birth, John the Baptist, what's coming? The birth, just right after the birth, a little bit of two years old, a little bit of exile. In terms of we, he went into exile in Egypt, that's all we know. And then we get this shot at 12, and then we're not going to see anything again until he's around the age of 30. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Um, Reminder, we will start next week off in called business session. Uh, we'll stop pr start promptly at 6. Next Sunday is the official vote over the budget. Now, that's the only thing we're voting on next Sunday. We're going to vote several weeks later on names for our, uh, our team members. And the primary reason for that uh, is some of those teams have to be presented uh, in conjunction with our deacon chairman. And due to some work conflicts, uh, Aaron Nelson can't be there next Wednesday. So uh, we're... It's not a problem. We'll just break up the vote in half, which is what we did last year too. So there's no issue there. It'll just actually make next week run a little bit quicker as far as uh, we'll, we'll, we'll present you with the budget, um, give you a couple things you need to know, and then we will call for a motion to vote on it, and we'll vote on it one way or the other, and then we'll close the business session, and we'll go dive into the life of Christ. So let me pray for us as we finish our time tonight. So glad you're here. Get excited for Sunday because the first words... And the passage Sunday are, you adulteresses. So, ought to be an exciting time. <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, all my brothers and sisters here, those who are watching online, those who I know listen after the fact, and just thank you for allowing us to be a church family. Uh, Jesus, it is remarkable. Um, Lord, think, think about Simeon. He, he, he's One, the fact that you'd humble yourself to be a baby to allow us to even hold you. There's Simeon holding you, and as he gives that cry of praise that you are God's salvation, and he says a light to the Gentiles, Lord, he's, he's praising you for the fact that any of us in this room who are saved, it's because you came. That's what he's praising in that moment. So Jesus, thank you that you chose to come as a baby, 
You didn't come in luxury. You didn't come when technology was as advanced as today. You weren't born in a nice hospital or birthing center. You weren't born in what was nice that day. You were born to a poor blue-collar family who was out of town and in a cave. So Jesus, may we not forget that as you call us to submit to you, to walk in humility like we'll see Sunday, you've actually not called us to do anything that as a man you have not actually modeled far more than we'll ever know. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you didn't look at a world opposed to you and say, you know what? Y'all can just have what you want. But Jesus, you came. You came and you proclaimed. You said, I am the message. So the kingdom of God, I'm bringing it. It's at hand. Repent. Because Jesus, your heart, is to love your image bearers and your heart is to provide salvation for anyone who would in faith turn to you and say, Jesus, I need you to save me, your Lord. So thank you. May we never get over that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.